0: Uh, Hey, this is Sonny Bunch, host of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood, sitting in for Charlie today. The conversation you're about to hear was recorded before Spider-Man topped a billion dollars at the box office over the holiday weekend. So the numbers that come a little bit later in the show are slightly out of date. Keep that in mind when we get to the section where we talk about Chinese box office and American box office and all that. Hey, this is Sonny Bunch, sitting in for Charlie Sykes today. Very, very happy to be sitting in for Charlie. Thank you for the the time. I am excited to be talking today to Chris Fenton. Now, I've had Chris on my show, The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood, a couple of times to talk about China and Hollywood and all that good stuff. Um, But I wanted to have him on again today because there's a big piece in Variety. The headline here is uh, Inside China and Hollywood's Frayed Relationship, uh, talking about the changing relationship between Hollywood and China and kind of what impact that's going to have on the movie business writ large but also just on the general business atmosphere. So Chris is the author of Feeding the Dragon Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. It is a it's a very fascinating first-person look at a Part of the movie business that people really didn't understand very well until a couple years ago. Um, but Chris was on the ground early, making inroads with China and kind of saw how they were using that experience to build their own industry, right, Chris?
1: Yeah, that's the case. Well, first of all, it's awesome being on the bulwark. Uh I'm a big fan of Charlie's and Sonny, as you know, I have a man crush on you. And uh <laughs> we've been able to talk quite a bit about this topic over the last two years, really after it it sort of came to light in a weird way through the NBA and Daryl Morey's tweet that was sort of heard around the world back in October of 2019. If everybody recalls, Daryl Morey was the Houston Rockets GM. He's now GM of the Philadelphia 76ers. But he tweeted support for Hong Kong protesters. And it seemed like a very simple thing to do during those uprisings in Hong Kong. And the second I heard about that tweet, I said, oh, that's going to be a problem for the NBA in China. Uh, China does not like that type of sensitive topic being covered by anybody that has big business in that market. And Daryl Morey treaded right into it. And not only was Daryl Morey a GM for an NBA team, but he was a GM for the most Branded NBA team in China, which is the Houston Rockets, thanks to Yao Ming. And my prediction that it was going to cause problems for the NBA, which various others had too, um, came true. But what I didn't see happening was the fact that the NBA, which has been very outspoken about all kinds of things when it comes to social injustices, really wasn't clear on how they were going to handle the controversy. They came out and sort of supported Daryl. Then they sort of backed off. There were players that sort of muddied through the whole process. And it just became a huge political firestorm, a geopolitical event that could have been a tempest in a teapot and blew out. And it was that moment that I realized all the engagement that I was involved with with China, starting roughly around the turn of the century in 2000, all of that was very similar to the NBA's engagement with China. And the quiet demeanor that I had in regards to being involved with the cultural and commercial exchange between the two countries was always about the end game, which was getting our products and services into the market no matter what it took. And as we see now, a lot of no matter what it took was to the detriment of the long-term health of the United States of America. And we can talk about that. But a lot of this now is rearing its head. You talked about the Variety article and also Hollywood Reporter covered it too. And I am here in Deadline. Hollywood's also going to do something on it. So this is all starting to come to a head. And I think a lot of that also has to do with these human emotional touch points, like the disappearance of Peng Shui, and obviously this huge cultural event that also has a lot of commerce behind it, which is the Beijing Winter Olympics in February.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk about your experiences with China because reading your book, it it was a super fascinating look at the way in which Hollywood in particular, but also, you know, the NBA and and other organizations got into bed with China. And I, I want to talk specifically about your experiences making Looper and Iron Man three, which were two huge movies, but were especially big and kind of game changing for the way that they helped those films and Hollywood in general get a bigger foothold in China?
1: Yeah, first of all, Looper had time travel in it. That was a project that we thought had real commercial potential in a market like China. And that was a a movie that starred Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt, and Bruce Willis. It was written and directed by Ryan Johnson, who's fantastic as a filmmaker, and he's gone on to the Star Wars movies and Knives Out. But it had a lot of facets to it that were very You know, sensitive. For instance, one was it involved time travel into the future. And one thing about China is they want to dictate how time travel stories are told. So typically, they won't let Western content with time travel in it. Because if it has time travel going into the past, they want to depict China in a certain way that they see it back in history. If it's China's depicted in the future, they want to control the narration of how China's depicted in in the future. So, one of the things we had to do with Looper, was convince Ryan Johnson and the filmmakers to change the setting of the future in that movie from France to China. And then not only get them on board with the fact that in the future in that movie, China made sense to have the plot take place there, but on top of it, integrate China into the story the same way you would brand integrate any sort of commercial product into a story. But you're trying to sell that commercial product when you put a Pepsi can into a a movie or a television show or a pair of Nikes. We had to do the same thing about China. And China was very particular about how their brand was going to be depicted. So one of the overarching themes was that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who is the young version of Bruce Willis in the movie, in his present day, he wanted one day to live the utopian form of retirement which he decided was moving to China. And why? Because China was going to be the mecca of where the weight of the world is 40 years in the future. So we had to create this utopian society that occurred in the city of Shanghai in order to get the Chinese Communist Party excited about letting that movie into the market. Not only that, we had to use above-the-line personnel. We used uh, an actress named Summer Ching to be in the movie so she could learn the art of being a world-class actor in the film by working side-by-side with Hollywood. We also had to utilize below-the-line crews. We had to shoot on the ground. We had to teach them how to utilize sound stages in the way Hollywood does, how to do gaffing and gripping and all the other stuff. And the point of all of that was that if we wanted to sell fish, to their 1.4 billion people. We had to teach them how to fish in the process. And that is where we are seeing today's market when it comes to Hollywood, and it can get rinsed and repeated with every other industry out there. The fact is, we did a great job of teaching them how to fish in order to get our fish sold in the market. And now the only fish that sells in the market happens to be made by their local industry because we taught them so well. So we created our greatest Imitators, our greatest competitors.
0: We'll talk about that a little bit more in a second because I think it's really interesting. The idea that China has that they can make their own big blockbuster film industry and sell it to the rest of the world, I'm skeptical of but also interested in. But let's talk about the financial incentives for Hollywood here, right? It's not just box office grosses, though China is currently at the moment the biggest box office market in the world. There were also production incentives, right? This is the whole backstory with Iron Man 3 and Marvel that they got a certain amount of money for being a co-production with China, right?
1: Yeah. So there were two things. One is Looper was a $35 million movie. The projections for that film, because of time travel, drug use, various criminal aspects, the studio, which was Sony at the time and, and also Endgame, they projected a zero amount of revenue coming out of China. They just simply thought it couldn't get in. So, we actually went and implemented China in a way and also created this ability to teach them how to fish during the process in order to get that zero into something meaningful re- revenue wise. And because we did it correctly, Looper ended up becoming a top 10 movie in 2012 for the China market, which was a huge feat. And by the way, so. Various things occurred during that process on the inputs, which was China financing came into play and was able to offset some of the budget costs. There were various scaling type of issues with a movie of that size that you could remedy in China where you could have bigger set pieces, more extras, craftsmen building bigger sets on a much cheaper basis. So that was a big savings. But then on top of it, the revenue that came in that year was quite impactful because the movie was never supposed to get in. And then you cut to Iron Man 3, which is a $200 million movie. The amount of money that was at stake by just establishing Marvel in the marketplace. Now, keep in mind, the largest hit that Marvel had prior to us getting involved with Iron Man 3 was Iron Man 2. It made $20 million. That's what it grossed. Iron Man 3, after we did all the things that I just talked about with Looper created a box office of $125 million just in the China market, and that was in 2013. So that's dog years ago. But then on top of it, it created Marvel's brand to be something that was highly sought after by 1.4 billion Chinese people, to the point where the last Marvel movie that was released in the market, which was the final Avengers movie made $660 million just in China. So Marvel started as an unknown brand, say in 2012, but by 2019, it was the most valuable entertainment IP in China. And that's what was at stake. Because keep in mind, when you're Disney and you own Marvel, it's not just like you said, Sonny, about the box office. It's also about creating consumer awareness around the underlying IP. And that was the whole goal for Disney, Marvel, and even Ike Perlman, who was the largest shareholder in Disney when we tackled that Iron Man 3 task.
0: Yeah. And beyond box office and awareness, all that, the Chinese government actually takes extra steps to protect the IP, right? They're cracking down on the DVD stands that are selling the pirated copies. They're making sure that theaters are actually able to show it and not necessarily have it show up on all the Chinese pirating sites, correct? That's exactly the case. And in fact,
1: Prior to Iron Man 3, Marvel was known by a small fan universe in China, and you could go to any of the, they call them silk markets or those black market sort of department stores, which are prevalent everywhere and they're not patrolled, and you could buy small figurines that were pirated black market figurines of Iron Man or Thor or Captain America, you name it. And there was that type of transactional activity happening around the IP, but none of it was collected by Marvel or Disney or any of the actual IP owners. It was all on the black market. And the Chinese Communist Party didn't really care. And on top of that, the people selling that merchandise knew they could sell it without getting caught or without having any sort of repercussions for selling something that was technically illegal. Now, that all changed when we announced this massive co-production, co-collaboration between the US and China on Iron Man 3. And it was hugely broadcasted when we made that announcement. There were these big signing ceremonies and it was covered all over the CCTV networks and various other journalistic platforms because it was something that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to tout as the first of many of these things at such a huge scale. So what happened was immediately all of that pirated merchandise disappeared off the shelves. And it wasn't because the Chinese Communist Party went around with patrols and took them off the shelves and arrested people. It was because the people selling that pirated merchandise knew that now, because of all the coverage of this movie that was coming up and the IP that was underlying the content that was created in that story, was now something that the Chinese Communist Party cared about and was supporting and putting the wind to the back of. And the second anybody of those 1.4 billion people understand the government is behind something, they take it a lot more seriously. So they are not selling that pirated stuff over there anymore. And they probably never will, because they believe there will be repercussions for it. Whereas some of the other IP that we might know, whether it's a Peppa the Pig or something from Lego or something from Playmobil or whatever it is that stuff is still out there being sold on the black market because no one believes that there's really government support behind it.
0: So there's the the carrot, right? Money is the carrot. You get uh, some financing help, you get you make a lot of money, you can sell your stuff and make profit off of DVDs and plush figures and whatnot. But also, there's a drawback to that. There's a cost, there's a stick. What happens to the world of storytelling in Hollywood when China has essentially veto power over what can get shown there and what can be protected there?
1: Well, the beauty of Iron Man 3 is that we were working with Marvel, and Marvel has been run for a long time by Kevin Feige, who I think, well, I'm definitely a big fan of, and I believe you are too. He is a steward of the IP. He knows that Marvel's brand, the content, the IP, the characters, the storylines are so beloved by its fans that he can't do things that are going to marginalize the value of that in the eyes of that audience. So he was very steadfast in staying relatively defiant with a lot of the ideas that we came up with to sort of brand integrate China into the Iron Man story. In fact, in the book, I talk about this crazy meeting where I actually pitched the idea of this kid who actually comes to the rescue. He finds Tony Stark dragging the Iron Man suit in the middle of the woods in this snowy field, essentially on his deathbed. And this young kid brings him back to life in a shed. And later on in the movie, he helps him get his Iron Man glove back, which helps save the day. Well, I pitched in a meeting the idea of that being Xi Jinping's kid. And it made no sense to anybody because they didn't understand that the Chinese Communist Party actually – has exchanges where they put very high up government officials on these exchanges in middle America, where they live with normal families and they learn what middle America is about. They really assimilate themselves into it. And Xi Jinping at the time in 2012 wasn't running China. Uh, It was actually a guy named Hu Jintao. But we knew he was going to be running it. And we knew that if we put him in as a kernel of this story, not naming him, but using his storyline and having a Chinese kid save the day in Iron Man 3, it would create massive wind to the back as far as government support for the movie, number one. But it would also create this huge pride among consumers that would hopefully go and see the movie again and again. Well, needless to say, Kevin Feige said that was too heavy-handed. And there's no way he's going to do that. But he did come up with other particular ideas that I talk about in the book that did allow us to brand integrate China into it. And it worked. So the bottom line is, if I look back to 2012, where things like that Xi Jinping idea was essentially sold to deaf ears, if we cut forward in time, we look that we've matured a lot in that process to the detriment of the freedom of creative expression that Hollywood is supposed to protect. I mean, if you look at Marvel alone, you have Shang-Chi and you have even Eternals that you could argue was Chloe Zhao the best fit as a filmmaker to go make that movie, or was that a filmmaker that they wanted to use in order to gain traction in the China market? I don't know if anybody's talked about that In public, but I would surmise that there was some calculus put into that. In the same way that if you look at Disney, which owns Marvel, went out and made Mulan, which is a traditionally many different versions, IP and legend in China, that was retold as a Disney huge temple movie. And that was also created simply for the China market. And you see Space Jam 2, another example of that, which LeBron James and the NBA and Warner Brothers got behind simply because they thought it would be huge in China. It was obviously never allowed into China, as were some of those other movies, which is where we're seeing the change in the market. But we were seeing a massive proactive use of this idea of putting really strong brand integration of China into films in order to make more revenues there. But there's the other version, which is the premeditated censorship version of story. Right.
0: So this is what I want to talk about. In in the variety piece we're going to discuss here in a second, there's a joke. And I I put joke in scare quotes almost because it's not a joke. It's true. But there was a joke that, you know, oh well, maybe now Hollywood will finally cast Richard Gere in a movie, or maybe Hollywood will make China the villain in a movie. And both of these things have not happened for a long time because Richard Gere's persona non grata to China for his Tibet activism, to the extent that if he is in a movie, a studio could see its entire line punished for him being in any one movie that studio produces. And China, of course, has not been treated as a villain in any of these big Hollywood blockbusters because they don't want to lose access to that market. I mean, you can go back to the reshoots and digital alterations to the Red Dawn reboot that originally had featured China as the Russia-like villain, and instead it was North Korea. Uh, There was a big study in PEN America, I think it was, about how that sort of censorship works, but it is mostly censorship by omission, right?
1: Yeah. Well, there's a premeditated censorship that really started in 1997 after a few studios got in trouble for making Red Corner, Seven Years in Tibet, and Kundun. All three of those treaded on very sensitive issues when it came to the Chinese government. And the Chinese government Essentially, said you can't make those type of movies. Now, the movie studios at the time in 1997 were never really thinking much about the China market. The China market was essentially a bunch of makeshift theaters put into pachinko parlors on Saturday nights. There was really no revenue derived out of that market. So, Hollywood was just making the movies that they thought were the best stories to tell, both for North America and the markets actually meant something at the time. But China had different ideas. And when those sensitive subjects were all touched in three different movies, China said, hey, we're going to be the largest market in the world one day. Michael Eisner, you better come over here and apologize for that Martin Scorsese movie. And Michael Eisner did hop on a plane, not only because he knew that the China market was going to be huge for box office for Disney someday, but also because they were in the preliminary stages of building the Shanghai theme park that eventually came online, I believe, in 2015. So Disney was well aware that they did not want to disrupt the potential golden goose that was coming around the corner. So once 1997 happened, that was the wake up call for everybody in the filmmaking and and quite frankly, the whole content creating community that was looking at the global audience as a source of revenue. That was the moment where everybody said, holy cow, we want to be the stewards, the pillars of creative and freedom of expression. But we can't tread into the very sensitive issues that the Chinese government wants us to avoid. And at the time, that was really Tiananmen Square, Tibet, Taiwan. Hong Kong wasn't really in there, but there was definitely human rights issues, any sort of criminality that was occurring inside China, they did not want shown. And they definitely didn't want Chinese villains in films.
0: So the uh, variety story I keep mentioning, here is the subhead. We need to stop trying to keep the status quo because the status quo is gone. It's almost like, be careful what you wish for, you just might get it sort of situation. I mean, Disney in particular, but I think everybody, all, all of the big studios, have kind of shifted so dramatically toward looking at the Chinese market and looking at not offending the Chinese market, you mentioned what Mulan, Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings and Eternals as films that were kind of made and marketed for the Chinese market. And all of them, well, Mulan flopped, but the other two didn't even get a release. So what is going on here now with China? Why has China looked at the Hollywood studios and said, you know what, we're going to take a break from you guys. We're going to, you know, do our own thing.
1: Yeah, I wish it was a break. But in fact, that status quo, quote I, it was a quote that I say later in that article. So I'm sort of humbled that they put it in the headline. But the fact of the matter is, if I look back at it, it's almost like, imagine spending 20 years in a career and then realizing very late, like, the first 18 years of what you were doing was not in the best interest of your country and being a nonpartisan patriot of the country like I am and thinking, God, how did we get here and how did I not see it? And it's a little like, going to Bruce Willis again the sixth sense right like you watch that whole movie and it's intriguing but you don't know what happens until you get to the very end and then you rethink that whole movie over and over again and you go ah ah why didn't i see that right and that's the same thing that i look at when it comes to china like hindsight is 2020 so if you look at what their overall goal was. Now, keep in mind, the Chinese government plays a game of chess over very long periods of time, 25, 50, 100-year time horizons, whereas the United States is much more about what's happening in the immediate moment. You know, We're into train wrecks versus slow motion train wrecks. We're into P&Ls. We're into two to four-year election cycles, quarterly results, et cetera. So it's hard for us to see. But number one is they wanted to learn how to fish. They really wanted to create their own homegrown industry, but the only way to get it there quickly on a world-class level was to learn from the best. So that was one of the things that they needed to do and why they gave us access to their very lucrative market in exchange for learning the, the tricks of the trade and how to hone those skills. So that's number one. Number two is, as we've seen with Evergrande, that huge real estate developer that is now bankrupt. There was a huge push to build city after city and develop the already established cities into meccas of commercial and residential real estate and essentially be the global envy and also the national envy of areas around the country where they were trying to get people to migrate from the outer towns and from the villages into the big city. One of those things involved, how do you draw people to parts of cities where no one's actually been to? They're outside of the central business district. So you build them around entertainment venues, whether it's a theme park like what Shanghai Disney is or what Universal Theme Park is or what Fosun or Dailon Wanda was involved with, or you build them around state-of-the-art cinemas and huge multiplexes that draw people in and then you can develop that real estate around it. Well, that is what they did. But one of the problems was, is they didn't have the content coming from the local film industry at that point to fill seats in those theaters. So they desperately needed huge blockbusters from Hollywood to help do that. So that was the second thing that occurred. Now, the third thing that's always been a huge issue when it comes to Hollywood is the Chinese Communist Party sees anything that comes from Hollywood, the Hollywood Studios, as a form of content that is propaganda from the West. It always has some sort of aspirational quality of democracy, and it creates that inside the people that watch it. And it's very subtle for the most part, a romantic comedy that you watch with Ryan Reynolds and Sandra Bullock, you don't think of as a Pillar or a a conduit to aspirational democracy sort of influence. But you know what? They're living in the free world. And that's something that the Chinese Communist Party likes to mitigate as much as possible. So if they could ever get to a point where A, they could fill their cinemas with their own local product, B, they could make local product at a world class level that can compete with Hollywood, and three, prevent aspirational quality of democracy coming into their 1.4 billion people and influencing them through content that is generated by Hollywood, if they could accomplish those three goals by never having to rely on the outside, that is their ultimate goal executable goal that they tried to aim for and that is what we're seeing today the largest movie in the world this year was a chinese movie and it was only released inside china and it made i think roughly
0: 900 million u.s dollars they are filling seats so i'm i'm looking at the uh, box office mojo 2021 worldwide chart right now and it's a fascinating chart because if you look at it the number one movie is the battle at lake shangjin which grossed 902 million dollars 99.9% of it, literally, inside of China. And then the number two title is High Mom, another Chinese movie, grossed 100% of its total in China, $822 million. And then you have No Time to Die, and now Spider-Man No Way Home is number four, then F9, and then Detective Chinatown 3, Again, grossed $686 million, all of that in China, which leads me to my big question here. If we think of American soft power that comes out of Hollywood as, again, it's something as silly as a romantic comedy, as you say do we think that China can make that sort of stuff sell around the world? I mean, they're doing huge business at home, and maybe that's enough, and maybe that's good enough for them. Maybe it can fill those multiplexes. But as you say, they want to be considered a real global cultural superpower, and they are not yet. And I am skeptical that they ever can be because I don't think that the Chinese ideals as espoused in films like The Battle at Lake Changjin translate to the rest of the world the same way Levi's do, right? That's famously how America defeated the the Soviet Union in the Cold War, right? We won because we had Levi's and they did not.
1: Well, it's an interesting question. Number one is, do they really care about their movies working outside of China? I think there's a pride issue there. And I think they do realize there's a wolf warrior or even a soft power influence that if they could get a hold of it the same way the United States of America was able to do it with our film business, whether it was patriotic movies around World War II or movies like uh, Rambo, etc. They would love that. But I think that's more of a long-term objective. And I don't think they're that foolish to believe that that's something that's going to just trigger overnight. I mean- even uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which you could argue was a Taiwanese film, you could see one of those movies every decade or two popping out and people going, wow, what a beautiful movie. That's stuff I've never seen before. I want to check that out. That could happen, but that's a little bit of a needle in a haystack. I do think what we'll see is not necessarily movies that translate emotionally or because of some sort of universal theme that comes from China, or some sort of stellar IP that no one's ever seen before and feels is so unique. I think it's going to come more from the technology side, where they're going to do things with AI and big data and a lot of technology advances that are moving along faster than we have happening here in the US. I think they're going to do things in the film world that will sort of blow our minds. And we might watch them simply because of the technology feat that's occurring on screen rather than the actual storytelling
0: underneath it. Uh, In what sense? Do you mean just special effects or what are you thinking about here? Well,
1: I mean, you're asking me to predict the future, which, by the (laughs) way, is not that far in advance, especially with how fast it's accelerating. But I would say I think we're going to see special effects and VFX work come out of China that no one could ever imagine would occur. And I think it's going to come out of there quicker than it does out of the US. They're just advancing technology in certain places where i think it's going to showcase in some of their larger films and people just simply out of curiosity they're going to want to check it out. I think number 2 is remember this is a a communist country where group think And that idea of individual artistic freedoms never existed. But if you're ever in Beijing, there's an area outside of the Central Business District called 798. And it's an old military sort of factory area that was taken over by artists. And every time I go there, I'm always amazed at some of the really unique and very original and fresh ideas that are coming from artists there. Sometimes they push the envelope too far. And the next time I'm out there, you realize they got shut down and they disappeared and somebody else replaced them. But for the most part, what I'm seeing is this idea that artists are starting to gain traction in that market. Now, obviously, they're restricted in a lot of ways. But that idea that they're copycatting everything. Or the IP is big in Korea and Japan, and then they're just China-fying it. That's going away. And there's real original thought and artistry going into new forms of IP. And I do think Eventually, we will see stories that captivate a global audience out of that market, not just from a technology side, but also from a human emotional core. But I do think that's going to be few and far between for at least the next decade or so.
0: So- in, in terms of what businesses can do, they're, they're kind of limited. I mean, they are at the, the whim of what the Chinese government wants. But what our government can do is also interesting, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at a Winter Olympics boycott coming up here, possibly, you know, on the diplomatic side of things, not the athletic side of things. What else is there that the United States government can do to kind of push back against some of this, but also help homegrown industries?
1: Yeah, the hopeful side of what we're talking about, especially talking about this subject during the holidays. Is that I do think it's solvable, right? I mean, money is what makes the world go round, and I think it's really interesting if you look at the risk reward calculus for not just Hollywood but for every other industry out there. China's not as easy to sort of think in a black and white type of way. It's much more muddied now. And that muddiness about, well, if we take the risk, will we get rewarded in China? If we make Mulan, if we make something that's inherently feels more of the Chinese culture, like Shang-Chi or the Eternals with like a Chinese filmmaker, does that get us that reward by taking that risk that maybe other audiences around the world might take offense at or not be as interested in, et cetera? It's not as easy to decipher. And I think that's a beautiful thing because now when it becomes muddy, what we're starting to look at is the amount of vocalization, the amount of publicity, the amount of attention of what industries are doing to get access to the China market. And consumers are very aware of that. And they're starting to look at the way companies are behaving. And they're going to decide whether that affects the way they create revenues for those companies based on the consumer products that they're normally engaged in. So in a perfect example, the WTA, and we haven't talked about the Peng Shui incident, but it plays into the upcoming Olympics. Peng Shui was this human sort of train wreck that occurred that the average American could get behind. It felt really human. It felt very emotional. It was a great touch point and a rallying cry about, whoa, human rights issues that seem to affect-
0: why don't you I just set the stage for us. What happened to Peng Shui? What, was she Chinese tennis player and just kind of got disappeared, right? Yeah,
1: so Peng Shui was number one in the world at one time as a doubles tennis player. And I think she got as high as about 13 or 14 overall as an individual. She came out and said that she was a long time harassed and abused sexually by Zhong Galli, one of the standing committee members for the whole country of China for many, many years. And keep in mind, there's only seven standing committee members overall, and one of them is Xi Jinping. So you're talking about one of the most powerful political players in the China market. She came out and said this on a diatribe essay on Weibo, which is the Chinese version of Twitter. It sat out there for 30 minutes before it was scrubbed. But during that 30 minutes, it was picked up all over China and eventually leaked out. Now, the Chinese government did exactly to her what they do to Jack Ma or to Wang Jinlin or Fan Bingbing when they're upset about something. They disappear them. And whether that means they get thrown into jail or a house arrest, they silence them. They disappear. And they did that with Peng Shui, thinking it was a tempest in a teapot that would remain that way. The problem is Peng Shui had lots of friends globally. And the tennis community, particularly the women's tennis community, was in uproar and demanded the WTA, which is the Women's Tennis Association, stop all engagement with China, which was very, very expensive to make a decision on because the WTA had 10 or maybe 11 events at the time in China pre-COVID that were all some of the most lucrative prize money events that they had on an annual basis. But the momentum was so strong and doing the right thing looked like such a strong idea to move towards They decided to take a stand, and China has banned the WTA from that market. And quite frankly, most of the tennis players in the Women's Tennis Association are banned from China also. So a lot of money was lost. But in a perfect scenario, which I do think is going to happen, I call it the Muhammad Ali effect, the WTA, which I never really thought about. Sonny, you probably hadn't thought about that organization either. Um, Now, (laughs) it's an organization I know a lot about. And I've gotten yeah. to know how noble and how they did the right thing and how it was morally and ethically the right call. And, and it gave me a really an excitement about a brand that I never even thought about. So I feel like they're going to see this Muhammad Ali effect occur where they take a short term hit, but the long term revenue that's built from audiences around the world because they are now bigger than what they were originally is going to reward them in a vast way. And if we start to see sponsors and other markets start to put together events that replace what they lost in China, that is going to lead, by example, other organizations to think they can do the same thing. And with the risk-reward calculus so muddy in China right now, everybody would love to have to stop thinking about China. Because China is a pain in the butt to work with. Now, I do not stand for a Cold War or war. We need engagement with China. In fact, my book, I talk about cultural and commercial exchange, is vital to keep us from going to war with them. But I would like to see, as a member of the Hollywood community, and the Hollywood community is supposed to be the bastion of creative freedom, I would like to go back to making the stories that we want to tell. And some of those stories might get banned from ever being in the China market, but it should not ban the entities and the individuals that make those movies from ever doing business in China again. That has to stop. And that's the rebalance that we need to start to direct towards China to get things more level in the bilateral relationship. And part of that's going to be us not being scared to be who we are as Americans and backing things that are right, whether it's on a human rights scale or whether it's on a freedom of speech scale. We need to start realizing we have leverage with that market. We don't have to go to war with them. We can still monetize it, but we got to do it more on a pro-West standpoint.
0: Well, that feels like a great place to leave off, Chris. I really appreciate it. Again, the title of his book is Feeding the Dragon Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. I really strongly recommend it uh, so you can get a first-person look at what is happening and what has happened, what companies have to deal with when dealing with China. So check out his book. Pick it up. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, booksellers everywhere. Chris, thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it.
1: I absolutely loved it. And as you can see, I'm passionate about it. I can talk about it for hours. So if you ever want to have (laughs) me back, I don't think we'll ever run out of stories and current events when it comes to the US-China engagement to discuss. So please have me back anytime. Humble and honored and happy holidays to you and your family and the rest of the audience listening in.
0: All right, thanks again. Uh, And thank you again to Charlie for letting me sit in.